Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Throughout the 20th century, especially during and immediately after World War II, New York Jews changed their names at rates considerably higher than any other ethnic group. Representative of the insidious nature of American anti-Semitism, recognizably Jewish names were often barriers for entry into college, employment, and professional advancement. College and job application forms were intentionally used as a means to control the Jewish population in a given college or institution. As such, many Jewish families legally changed their names in an effort to thwart pervasive anti-Semitism and discrimination. In A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America, Kirsten Vermeiglish nuances the misconceptions and common assumptions made about name changers and engages in a rich and meticulously researched study examining this trend. Kirsten Vermeiglish is Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Michigan State University. Hello, Kirsten, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So my first question for you is, how did you get interested in Jewish name changing? Can you explain the genesis of this project? Sure. Well, I always say kind of uh, glibly as a joke that it's because I have a name like Kirsten from English. <laughs> and so, of course, I want to write about name changing. Um, but that is just a glib joke. It's not true. Although I do think that having an unusual name has probably made me always fascinated in names. Um, but I think the origins of my project came about um, really because I've always been interested in Jews kind of on the margins of the Jewish community. My first work was on um, uh, social scientists um, who compared um, Nazi concentration, Jewish social scientists who compared Nazi concentration camps to American society. Um, And they were, you know, none of them were really affiliated Jews. They were not really engaged in the Jewish community. And all of them actually had engagement with name changing in some way. Um, uh, Either they themselves changed their names or they felt pressure to change their names. They knew other people who had changed their names. Um, And I actually have been interested in a variety of sort of ways of thinking about Jews at the boundaries of the Jewish community and really thinking about Jews passing. Um, this was initially going to be a larger project that was going to deal with nose jobs and uh, Unitarian church attendance. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in sort of the ways that boundaries are kind of used to define who Jews are, but those boundaries themselves are really kind of permeable and problematic. Um, and so name changing was a really good place to explore that. I saw it just in these people's personal lives, but it clearly became something that could be a larger, you know, sort of a larger engagement in the larger Jewish community. Um, fascinating. Um, I have a question for you specifically about methodology. You mentioned um, that you read many um, name change petitions um, at the Civil Court of New York City. Can you elaborate on your strategy for reading these petitions and what you were able to discern from them, given that they are legal documents? Yeah. So methodology is really important. I'm so glad you asked about it, like really upfront and early on, because a lot of times people don't. And it's really important. And it was really hard. I was not trained um, 
to do this kind of work. And I actually think that this question really connects to um, sort of the question earlier about looking at secular Jews and looking at Jews on the, the, the borders and the boundaries of Jewish community and identity, right? It's, you know, usually when people do Jewish studies, they're looking, you know, where the Jews are. They're looking at Jewish organizations and they're looking at Jewish, you know, spaces, religious, you know, religious institutions. They're looking in spaces where people are sort of actively affiliating with the Jewish community. Um, uh, and I didn't want to do that. I, you know, I wanted to be looking at people who maybe weren't affiliated, um, but that clearly creates huge problems methodologically. I think that's one reason why people do go to Jewish institutions is that you can Feel, feel pretty comfortable that people there are actually identifying as Jews and that they are Jewish, um, which is much harder to ascertain when you're looking, obviously, at legal documents. They don't, these documents don't ask for your religion um, or race or ethnic background, actually. Um, so um, I definitely, um, I mean, I needed, I needed a method. You asked first, like what the strategy for reading was. And, you know, um, I, I, there were thousands of them. So I did have to do some sampling, um, which I didn't really know how to do. And I had to ask, you know, my quantitative, uh, mostly friends in economics, um, uh, but also historians um, for, for help in figuring out a good sampling strategy. Um, but I really had to sort of... Um, think through how to decide who was Jewish. I mean, I really was overwhelmed. I mean, I, and I really was using names, um, is, was one way that I was really trying to figure out who was Jewish because it was really overwhelming to see this whole host of names that are just associated with Ashkenazic Jewish society. You know, there would just be pages of, you know, Rosenbergs and Goldsteins and Greenbergs and Cohens in, in the records I was looking at. Um, but I didn't just use those names. So I used, I, I ultimately wound up sort of divining a strategy that was twofold. Um, on the one hand, I found, and, and I wrote about um, a document, um, a really a, a, um, a, a uh, a, methodolo a methodology in social science called the Distinctive Jewish Name Methodology. This was um, developed by the National Jewish uh, uh, Welfare Board in, during World War II, a little bit before World War II, to count Jews. And uh, part of their counting was to try to identify distinctive Jewish names. So they developed a list of 106 distinctive Jewish names. And I find this process fascinating. I actually write about it in the book and sort of what it can tell us you know, about how, why and how people were thinking about Jewish names at the time. But I also used it methodologically. Um, you know, 20 people in the 1940s decided these were names, you know, in New York, these were names that would, you know, that, that would only reflect Jews. Um, and so I used this as a proxy. So I used these kinds of names and these names included names like Greenberg and Goldstein. Um, I actually have the list hanging up right here by my desk. Um, so it included those lists. And if anybody had those names, they and their families, I identified them as Jews. So mm. that was kind of categorical. I then, I had plenty of names that didn't show up. I had a lot of names that showed up on that list, really far disproportionate to what there should have been, um, which I think is interesting. But then I also um, used kind of a, sort of a, you know, like a triangulating strategy, if a first a last name sounded Jewish, but it wasn't distinctively Jewish, something like Kaufman, for example, which could be both Jewish or non-Jewish, I matched the first names, right? I looked at what the first names were, um, and I tried to see whether those were typical Jewish names, you know, names that I was seeing in a lot of other Jewish families, names like Shirley for a woman um, or Etta. 
um, or a name like, you know, Abraham or, you know, Irving or Stanley, names that, that were pretty well identified with the Jewish community. And if I could match the first name and the last name, I generally considered that person and their family Jewish. Um, if I had doubts, um, if the names didn't match, but I wasn't sure, I used kind of a host of other kinds of markers. Even though I didn't have religion in the files, I did have a lot of other information. I had addresses, I had occupation, I had birthplace. Um, and so I tried to triangulate. So the, the example I usually give is, you know, if somebody's name was Abraham Schwartz and he was a tailor and he lived, you know, on the Lower East Side, I called him Jewish. And if his name was Gerhard Schwartz and he lived in Queens and he was a chauffeur, I didn't call him Jewish. Mm. Um, I kept a separate list that I called kind of, you know, possible Jewish with a question mark, but I never counted those in my numbers. Um, and that was usually another 10%. So I think I undercounted rather than overcounted. Um, it was hard and it's not perfect. Um, but I really do think that it offers, I mean, it offered me a chance to look for people that wouldn't show up in you know, wouldn't necessarily show up in a, in a Jewish admin, you know, in a Jewish institutional file. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was a pretty productive strategy. Um, can you elaborate on what information besides like name and address and, and um, occupation, for example, you could discern from these name change pe petitions? Was there an ex, for example, was there an explanation as to why someone would be changing their name or not necessarily? Yes. Yeah, so I don't think I would have been able to do this project nearly as well if there hadn't, if I hadn't had that. And um, so they do, the petitions all include grounds for changing their names. And with the exception of a couple of years, um, there's about a decade or two in the earlier century, in the earlier part of the century, where I don't have those reasons. All that was preserved were the orders, the judge's orders saying this name has been changed. And so I don't have that information. But for the rest of the century, I do. I had, you know, the grounds. Um, you know, clearly these are legal documents, especially in the early part of the, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, they're, they're legal documents, mostly produced by lawyers. So, um, you know, you, the, you know, the language is sometimes formulaic. You have to be thinking about the audience. You know, they're not, there's, you know, there's, the, the archives are not, you know, they don't always speak to what you want them to speak. And, they, you know, you have to kind of look through them and, and question them. Um, but they did include some grounds. And I really was able to use those grounds to distinguish, you know, there are people changing their names for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the, the petitions that I found um, that Jews were dominating in were petitions to change your name to, to erase an ethnic name and, and substitute a less ethnic sounding name. Um, and, and those are names that, that, you know, I used those grounds um, anywhere, you know, people saying in their petition, you know, the name is hard to pronounce, the name is hard to spell, um, the name might cause embarrassment, the name is not an appropriate name, the name is a foreign sounding name. I, all of those kinds of grounds, I kind of brought into a code that I called um, de-ethnicizing. Um, and that was really crucial. I wouldn't have been able to make the arguments that I made without having that information. Um, you locate your study um, in New York City in the 20th century. And I'm just wondering if, if name changing was a unique New York phenomenon or whether this trend can be seen in other Jewish communities in the United States in the same historical period. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that that's the question I get asked most often. Um, 
And I will say that initially I intended this to be a a comparative project. I thought that I would compare New York to Detroit to Los Angeles. Um, uh, This is in part because I was doing this project when my children were young and I was hoping to find places where I could either bring my kids or stay home and and do my work. Um, But I also thought that those would be really interesting Jewish communities to compare. Uh, however, it took me 12 years to write this book, so I wasn't going to be able to do, I, you know, if I wanted to do it before I died or left the profession, I was going to have to stay with one city. Um, and actually, quite honestly, it was not that easy to look at the materials. I couldn't look at them in Detroit. I actually, I really thought that, you know, I might've been able to do this comparatively with Detroit because I live here, um, or, you know, I live in Michigan, but, uh, but it was hard to look at these materials. So I, I wasn't able to, to get a chance to look at them full out, um, in Detroit the way I did in New York. Um, so given that I, ha- mm. I have limited, I, I can't completely answer this question, but I can tell you what I know from the other materials that I've looked at, which is that um, there were a group of sociologists that did look at name changing in LA in the 1950s. Very, They looked at like, I think one year, like 1946 to 1947. And they found very similar things. Uh, you know, disproportionate numbers of Jews from middle class backgrounds were changing their names. Um, and then there also was a study, uh, an anthropological study of Jews in the 1960s, the um, uh, in a thinly veiled Minneapolis. Um, and that similarly found large numbers of middle class Jews um, changing their names um, for, for business reasons. So I think that I could say, given those, there are at least two other social scientists early, you know, closer to the time frame that have done some more quantitative work and found similar things. So I think that I would say tentatively, um, and also given correspondence that I've seen from Jews from all over the country, um, which were written in response to, you know, discussions and debates over name changing in national magazines and things. That, um, that, you know, large cities where there are Jews, L.A., you know, Detroit, uh, St. Louis, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a whole, you know, other places, Toronto, and, you know, places where there are Jewish communities, I think that you would see something similar. Um, that is my sense. And as I say, there are these two, not as extensive as mine, but two sort of, you know, places where people have seen that, that mirroring that. I don't know about small towns. The only other numeric work that I've seen on people doing, looking at name changing, um, was a book um, about uh, sort of smaller town Jews in, in one in sort of, I believe, rural Pennsylvania. Um, and that found smaller numbers of Jews and Jews who changed their names and left the Jewish community, which is not really what I found. Um, so I think that looking at small town um, and rural Jews might be a different, you, you might find different things. But I would say, I think it's probably fairly, fairly true for other, for other larger Jewish communities in the U.S. Um, my next question for you is, is rather simple, but um, obviously it's complex because you wrote your whole book on it. Um, very simply, why did Jews want to change their names? And what impact did changing their names have on them and their families? That is both simple and gigantic. <laughs> um, so this simple answer to the question, I mean, I should say it is really important to say that this is, I'm looking at um, name change petitions that are, that are um, filed in court. You can actually change your name unofficially. Um, and so there have been lots of, you know, I can't, I did not study people who didn't change their names officially. So I, I'm not going to, I can't comment on sort of the larger, broader um, reasons that Jews change their names. But from what I saw, 
the numbers are going up just as Jews are entering and succeeding in the middle class, and they are being faced with anti-Semitic um, restrictions. Um, so it is, to me, I see it as a, it is like a symbiotic process. As Jews are succeeding in the middle class, as they are trying to enter universities, um, even elite universities uh, like uh, Columbia and Harvard, this is second generation Jews, you know, people whose parents were immigrants, frequently native born American Jews. Um, they are trying to get jobs in the middle class. They're trying, they have, they are already, they have some middle class status frequently. They already have some money. They are looking to either extend it um, to improve their status. They want to go to a college. They want to get a white collar job. Just as Jews are, are beginning to succeed in these particular places, um, universities like Columbia and Harvard, um, employers, begin to structure um, application forms um, that are specifically designed to root out Jews. Um, and they begin to look at who has a Jewish name, to ask where your father was born, to ask what your mother's maiden name is. Um, and so, you know, this is, it is incredibly complex. It is both simple and complex. I mean, anti-Semitism, um, middle, middle class Mobility and anti-Semitism are the, are the easy answers, but it's incredibly complex. Um, this is kind of, uh, it is this very intertwined um, space that Jews find themselves in where they are finding success. And it's precisely that success that is threatening and challenging um, Native-born Americans and leading actually to much more hatred and much more discrimination than Jews had faced before. Um, and so name changing becomes something that, um, that, people do as, as like a, a, a way to help out their family, right? Parents and children, uh, brothers and sisters, um, husbands and wives change their names together. They see it as kind of a pragmatic way to increase your chances of um, getting through life without a Jewish name, you know, limiting where you can go and what you can do and where you can work and where you can mm -hmm. go to school. Um, so that's, I think that's the base. I mean, I think that's, I, that's clearly what I'm seeing in, in, in these petitions. Um, so what impact it had on them is interesting. So, because I don't, you know, and, and I, I can't fully answer that question in the sense that all I mostly have for these particular people are their petitions. And I don't really get to see for these folks, for the most part, what happened to them. You know, I, so I, I, I can't say whether they were successful or not. Um, I can say that in the oral histories that I did, and I didn't do extensive oral histories, I did only some, um, I found that most people did find that it had helped, um, that they thought that, that, that having that kind of flexible name that didn't automatically identify them as Jews, that that did make a difference in them getting jobs, um, succeeding in school, um, I, there's other work, though, that suggests that maybe it wasn't as necessary. You know, there's some published work that says, you know, people weren't sure whether they faced anti-Semitism or not. They're not sure whether it changed anything or not. So it's it's a more mixed bag. But um, I would say at least the oral histories that I looked at and some of the other published material I wrote suggest that people felt that it it it, it did succeed, right, in that very limited, narrow way that they were looking for. Um, but I would also say that there's another impact that it had, which was far more negative, which was that 
they sometimes faced um, uh, they sometimes faced um, ridicule from other Jews, um, from people in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. Um, they sometimes it sometimes led to secrets or anger um, within a family. One side of the family changed their name, another side didn't. Children being unhappy, uh, you know, or grandchildren being unhappy, you know, a generation later that names were changed. Um, some people have sort of suggested that this was kept kind of secret from them. I've had several reports of, you know, kids whose names were changed out from under them. You know, they came home from the war. This is a story I've heard from a couple of people. You know, they came home from the war and they found out their families had changed their names on them. Um, or they went to school for the first time and they found out they had a different name, um, which a lot of times people just tell for humorous stories. You know, I certainly have people who who don't suggest that there's pain to that. And then I've heard stories that are more painful, right? So I think that it's a, it's a more mixed... Um, uh, it's, it, it had a mixed impact, I would say, on people's family lives, on their community lives. Um, I think that there was a lot more. And, and I'll certainly say that, you know, even if it wasn't on a one-to-one personal basis that they experienced, you know, sort of ridicule for changing their names, there was certainly a great deal of a program in the years after World War II that was directed towards name changers, you know, sort of the suggestion that name changers were betraying the Jewish community, that they were self-hating Jews. Um, and I, I think that that probably was kind of painful to some people. I imagine it would have had to have been. It certainly shaped the cultural perception of who name changers were and made it maybe more embarrassing to admit that that was something that you had done or that you felt you had to do. Did you find in your in your research that, well, you sort of just alluded to this, um, Oh, well, there was, a, I guess, a charge or the assumption that um, name changers were abandoning their Jewishness or Judaism in some capacity or assimilating. Um, did you find that this critique um, was fair or did, in your research, did you find, um, oh, I'm losing my words, um, did you find uh, evidence of that? So um, I found very small pieces of evidence that that was the case for a very limited number of people. So I did find a few petitions, maybe one or two a year um, in the middle of the 20th century, where somebody would say, you know, it, um, it would be frequently a man and a woman uh, who uh, had married and uh, the Jewish partner wanted to convert or was planning to raise their children Catholic usually. Um, so there's a very limited number of people who are in fact intermarrying, who are planning on, I mean, so I don't even consider this like betraying the Jewish community, but they are leaving the Jewish community, right? They're deciding that they're going to raise their children Jewish, that they're, you know, that they, they themselves are converting. So I found at least one or two, um, uh, petitions from people who themselves describe their own conversion. The fact that they don't want this confusing Jewish name still a part of this because they're being read wrong. Um, so I did find very small numbers of that. I also probably found, I did not find this in my petitions, but you can find in sort of the published, you know, kind of in, in the late 1940s, there's a lot of discussion about name changing in the Jewish community that kind of shows up in like, you know, Reader's Digest and Atlantic Monthly and places like that. And if you look at those, you can see maybe a few other people who will say things like, you know, I, I don't consider myself, you know, really a member of the Jewish community. I consider myself a member of the human race. 
you know, so there's a certain amount of kind of like, um, like this is particularly among like intellectuals, right? Sort of secular, you know, intellectuals who, you know, see, you know, Judaism as being too parochial, right? The Jewish community is too parochial. They want to be people of the world. They want to be sort of universalists, which was, you know, sort of popular intellectually at the time. And so I have found some published testimony like that. Again, small numbers. Um, and there, there might be some additional evidence to suggest that maybe that holds sway for, you know, some numbers, some small numbers of like intellectuals, academics and stuff like that. That's actually where my next project is going to go. So I'm curious to see if I'm going to find more of that. Um, but in the published materials, I've seen pretty small. But the vast majority of the petitions that I found do not suggest this. And the large percent, you know, the large numbers of even the published materials that I found, books and um, movies and jokes and things like that, to me suggest that this is really, that this was a really um, unfair and really problematic charge about name changers. Um, you know, probably, probably to me, the most striking example of this is that there's a piece in commentary from 1952 uh, where um, J. Alvin Kugelmass, this, this piece was cited over and over again. When I was looking for stuff on name changing, when I started my research, this piece from 1952 was like the, the piece that was listed as like the most, uh, the most authoritative piece on name changing. He went and talked to like 25, oh, excuse me. He went and talked to like 25 name changers um, uh, um, uh, in the New York City area. He kind of cold called people and tried to find people who had changed their names. And he writes, and, and nobody took this seriously. They all cited, so many people have cited this article, but nobody sort of took seriously his conclusions, which is that he talks to 25 people, more than 25 because he calls men, but some, apparently some of the wives also you know, wanted to talk to him as well. So they would get on the phone and talk to him as well. Um, none of them, they, they all wanted to talk about how they were still Jewish. Right. They all insisted that they were members of their synagogue. Sometimes they were presidents of their synagogue, that this in no way, shape or form changed or shaped their 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 sense of themselves as Jewish. Um, and it's always fascinating to me that everybody sort of uses the numeric conclusions he comes to, which were kind of wrong in this article. And nobody really looks at the findings that he has, which is like 25 random people who changed their name were called and every single one of them insisted they were still part of the Jewish community. And that's really kind of most of what I found. You know, none, very few of these petitions are indicating in any way that they want to, you know, leave the Jewish community. They rarely identify themselves as Jews, but they frequently talk about a Jewish name as being kind of disruptive to their work and their social life, right? Um, I, I, I use um, the work of Kenji Yoshino, who is actually also borrowing from Irving Goffman, who wrote at this time, who sort of talks about you know, passing, you know, that we sort of see passing as this kind of black and white, you know, you pass over into another group. Um, but Goffman suggests that this is much more of a spectrum. And he identifies one piece of the spectrum as something he calls covering, which means that you, you know, you, every, everybody knows what you are, right? But you kind of preserve this kind of fiction because it makes it easier in the world. If you don't always have this Jewish name that announces no matter where you are, no matter who, and he actually uses name changing as an example of covering, right? No matter where you are, no matter who you are, when you have a Jewish name, it's out there, right? You're Jewish. And for a lot of these people, they simply didn't want that marker that might lose them clients, that might lose them a job, that might lose them uh, entry into a school or a profession that they want. 
They just didn't want that in all places in their life. And you, and you can see that in the petitions really clearly. Um, and as I say, you can see it. There's actually, there's a, there's a, if you really are looking for it, if you look at, you know, Lenny Bruce's bits on Barry Goldwater, or you look at like middlebrow fiction from the, you know, all from the post-war era, you see a whole host of materials that kind of suggest that, you know, most Jews know somebody else who's changed their names and they're still part of the Jewish community. You know, there's, there's a sense that there are some Jews who are escaping, um, but the vast majority of them, they're, they're still a part of the Jewish community. They just want to make their lives easier and they want to make sure they're not um, being disadvantaged, which is something that they are with a Jewish name. Um, so you start your book with um, an excerpt from A Treasury of American Jewish Folklore. And I'm going to read it because it's short and just in case some of our listeners haven't read it, heard, read it before. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about this in a moment. Um, so it goes like this. A Jewish immigrant entered America at Ellis Island. The procedures were confusing to him. He was overwhelmed by the commotion. When one of the officials asked him, what is your name? He replied in Yiddish. I'm, not, I'm probably going to mispronounce this. So I'm, I know. I'm gonna I always to, do. I'm going to ask you to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he replied, Shine for Gessen. Did I pronounce that right? I'm, I don't speak Yiddish, but I think that's roughly right. Yes. Okay. Phew, okay. <laughs> um, and in Yiddish, this means I've already forgotten. The official then recorded his name as Sean Ferguson. So... My question to you is, what role do stories like this assume in Americans' imaginations about name changers, and how does your research challenge this depiction? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, that has been, when I give public talks, for example, sort of this vision, either, either this joke or people's personal stories, you know, their grandmother told them that's where their names were changed. I mean, it's, it's so unbelievably striking how many people have this as kind of the story of, of how their names were changed. Um, but it's incidentally not a story that shows up very much in pop culture in the, you know, it, throughout most of the 20th century, really, till the 1960s. It really doesn't show up very much anywhere. And now it's kind of everywhere. Um, I, I think it is huge in people's imagination. I mean, you know, strikingly, even when I give academic talks, sometimes that's what academics kind of have in their mind as what 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 name changing is. Um, so it's, it's it is really striking to me when I started this. You know, th there's really this is the first book on name changing, right? It's really striking how much these kinds of cultural images have kind of formed what we've thought about name changing, and that really nobody's thought about really looking into what it really meant. I just think it's such a powerful and popular vision. Um, uh, my research does challenge this depiction in part because it is a fairly recent vintage, actually, this kind of joke and story. It doesn't show up. That that treasury of Jewish American Jewish folklore um, comes after the 1960s. If you look at earlier books of folklore and humor um, uh, before the 1960s, you don't find this joke or you find it in kind of a different setting. But it's not about immigration. It's not about Ellis Island. Um, so it is it, really striking how important it is. Um, and I actually think it's really significant that it's not till the 1960s and 1970s. Um, I think in, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, when Jews actually knew people changing their names, when they actually knew their 
their neighbors and their friends and their family members were changing their names, they actually had a better sense, right? They knew people who were changing their names. They knew that people were going down to the courthouse and, you know, getting legal petitions to change their names. And they were way more aware of it. So if you look at the literature, if you look at like pop culture in the 1940s, um, there's there's much more of, a, of an understanding of what really happened. Um, but I think that as uh, Jews stopped changing their names in large numbers, as um, you know, as civil rights laws were passed and um, it was no longer legal to discriminate against people because of their names or because of name changing, more people kept their names. Um, and I think um, uh, I, I think that the negative sentiment of name changers kind of took hold, a sense of name changers as being people who might have betrayed the community, might have betrayed their family. You can see that really dominantly in pop culture in the 1970s and 80s. And I think that concurrent with that, I think a lot of people were embarrassed to talk about actually how their names were really changed. You know, I think a lot of people didn't want to say that they themselves changed their names, you know, that they did so consciously, even under, you know, under pretty good practical reasons. Um, and so I think that there's kind of, um, I, I think that now, it, it, and I should say, you know, you ask how the research challenges this depiction. Um, I did not go looking at Ellis. I actually did go looking for Ellis Island documents. They don't have a lot of them. People at Ellis Island are pretty convinced this didn't happen. Most genealogists are convinced names weren't changed at Ellis Island. Um, immigration historians are mostly convinced that names were not changed at Ellis Island. When I said I was going to start doing this work, that's what most people said is, oh, good, you're going to get rid of that myth. Um, and I should say, I mean, it's hard to prove a negative. You know, I, I can't absolutely say this never happened, but the, there's pretty much no evidence for it, right? There's lots of evidence that it did, you know, there, there, there's no evidence for it. And there's instead evidence that people change their names consciously, right? Um, not everybody changes their names legally. There are certainly immigrants who are changing their names informally on shop floors and things like this. Um, but I think what my research does is show that there are thousands of people who actively, purposely change their own names. And they're not immigrants. They're native-born Americans who are experiencing discrimination. Um, so at the very least, I, you know, I, I always feel bad about telling people it, in talks and things that their grandmothers were lying to them. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, I, and it has brought down a couple of talks. I will say I've given a couple of talks where I wasn't prepared for it and it just kind of really got out of hand. And I've spoken to um, other historians, uh, people who've said the same thing or genealogists who knows this is a really hard thing to say. Um, but I will say that, you know, there's, there's no evidence for immigrants getting their names changed at Ellis Island, the, you know, um, and there's lots of evidence of people doing so consciously and then, and then being attacked for it in the Jewish community. So there's also kind of motivation for people to kind of dissemble about why they did this, right? Or at least not to talk about it very much. Um, and so I think, I think the research challenges that as well. And then the final thing I'll say that to me is always the strongest argument for why we can sort of say absolutely nobody's names were involuntarily changed at Ellis Island is that what my work does talk about a lot is, you know, name change law in the U.S. is one of the most flexible places in the world. It's certainly in the Western world, you know, Europe and, and, and um, uh, in Europe and uh, uh, Latin America, as far as I know. It's one of the most flexible places where to change your name. You can change your name unofficially. You can change your name however you want, so long as you're not trying to defraud people. Um, 
So if anybody's name got changed at Ellis Island and they didn't like it, they could just change it back. And they knew that because they were living in communities. We know this because we read lots of immigrant memoirs. There's lots of memoirs where people talk about changing their names. Everybody's living in a space where they know they can change their name if they want to. Um, so I, I think that sort of the bulk of these things suggest that this story is is really, a, you know, it's a joke. It's a myth. It's a piece of folklore. It's something that that helps to make sense of um, number one, an, an absence of silence in their in their genealogical record and their historical record, and doesn't blame them for for doing something that the community came to find shameful in a way that it wasn't as shameful beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, you examine this in the book, and you just mentioned it that um, folks name changers really gave their their um, their petition to change their name a lot of thought, um, and they went through this endeavor with a lot of intention. Um, And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on how people actually chose their new names. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't have, I don't, I don't generally have insight into the process because again, I just have the finished petition. I actually had a student once, I tell my students about this every year, hoping that I'll get good stories from them. And I did have a student once who said that her family had found, um, uh, an envelope, I guess, or like a piece of scratch paper where the, her grandfather, I guess, had sat and written down the possible names that he was going to change to. <laughs> like he had like a variety of them, which is, which is amazing. Um, uh, so I, but I don't have a huge sense into the process, but I can say what I found, you know, sort of the, the, the patterns that I found for sure, which is that, um, that, you know, in general, they're not translations. Like there's the sense, you know, people will sometimes say, oh, they Americanized or they Anglicized their names. And I try to avoid those words because number one, most of the people doing this name changing are American born. They're Americans, right? So I don't think they're Americanizing their names. Um, and they're also not Anglicizing them because um, a lot of times what they're doing is just lopping off, you know? So Greenberg becomes green, Rosenberg becomes Rose. You know, they are... They are, the thing I like to say about them is that they're creating the most anodyne names they can think of. They are creating names that will not be noticed, that will allow them to just skirt under the radar. They're not translating. They're not, um, I I can like remember like maybe one translation, one kind of clever play on words. For the most part, the the vast majority, I don't want to say the vast majority because I didn't actually run numbers on this, but, you know, eyeballing it. In general, they're either just lopping off and making things shorter, or they're taking a first initial. So, at like this is on the front cover of my book, you know, Epstein becomes Edwards, um, or Rabinowitz becomes Robbins, right? So they're taking, they're they're, and this to me is even more of a symbol, really, of how this is about escaping kind of markers of Jewishness, right, and escaping anti-Semitism. They are looking for just like the easiest way to, to not be noticed. Um, and you know, there's jokes, there was actually a published piece of folklore years ago that talks about coded names, right? The fact that maybe Jews are choosing kind of names that will signal to other Jews in the know, right? That these, that these names are changed Jewish names. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, you know, that to me is slightly plausible. I mean, certainly lopping off and choosing a name like Rose or Green or something like that, or Robbins, 
um, is those are pretty good. You know, there are so many people that have those names. Um, but I also use as an example something that to me screams out as a changed name because of the work I've done. I mean, in general, I now, I'm now the one who walks around being like, oh, that's a changed name. That's a changed name. That's a changed name. <laughs> Nobody else gives a damn, right? But I walk around. I'm like, oh, no, that's totally a changed name. Um, but like the name like, Bur- a name like Burke, B-E-R-K-E or B-E-R-K. Like these are, these are, there's such lopped off names, like with an intent to make them kind of sound English, but they didn't even change the spelling. You know what I mean? Like that's Berkowitz, right? B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. It's not the English spelling of Burke. People are usually even not choosing that English spelling, B-U-R-K-E, right? They're not anglicizing. They're just trying to make it so they can get through the day without somebody guessing that they're Jewish and, you know, saying something rude or not giving them a job. Did you notice that um, most folks changed only their last names or were their first names changed as well? Yeah, so first names were changed as well. And I, you know, I probably should have done numbers on this because this is, again, a really common question that people asked me. And I, I just never, it would have been easy to run numbers on it. And I just, I didn't. And I don't, I don't know why I never tried. People do change their first names. Um, it was less common to change just your first name, right? Um, but people did it. Um, and it was less common to change your first name and your last name, but people did it. Um, uh, so, you know, and, you know, a lot of these petitions are being done as families, right? So you get like mother, father and the children doing it. And, and I would find maybe that like, usually not everybody would be changing their first names. Usually everybody would be changing their surname, but you'd probably get like one person in that group changing a first name if they didn't like it. Um, and they are changing and, and there are, when they are changing both names, um, like you might get a husband and a wife changing both names and when they're doing it, it is because their names are more Jewishly identified, right? Their names are, they're not always at this point Yiddish names, because again, most of these people are American born, but they might be changing a name from a more biblical sounding name, like, um, you know, Abraham or, um, I'm trying to think of some examples, um, you know, uh, or even th- some of these names like Stanley or Irving, sometimes people would be cognizant and would change a name to like Stephen, something that wouldn't sound quite so, you know, something that wasn't a name that so many Jews had chosen that it became a Jewish name. Um, so you do see, I mean, you see that names like Irving and Stanley or names that are biblical names um, or names that sound like immigrant names like Edda or uh, Dora, Dora. Um, or cause I know I just looked at a petition that was a Dora who changed her name to Doris, which I think is a slight shift in our, you know, 21st century vision. But I think at the time Doris sounded classy and American and Dora sounded like an immigrant, um, uh, or, you know, an ethnic, um, so yes, I would say people do. I don't know the numbers. It's fewer than just people changing their surnames, but it's it's a lot. It's not it's not nothing. If I had to just guess, I would guess maybe thirty percent change their first names too, twenty or thirty percent maybe. Um, but it is substantial. Um, you also meant you also talk about um, how name changing increased considerably during World War II in in your book. Um, can you talk about, can you elaborate um, on the reasons for this notable, noticeable increase? Yeah. I mean, to me, it was, that was really striking. I mean, the numbers are overwhelming. Um, uh, 
and, you know, up to, you know, 1946. So the year right after the war is um, the highest in the entire century. Um, but, you know, you also see 1942 is like the second highest, right? So it's really throughout the war, the numbers go up substantially. Um, it's really striking if you look at it. Um, it is both about anti-Semitism. It's both about fears of anti-Semitism in the military, um, uh, mostly in the military. So you see people who are going into the military saying that they are concerned uh, about, um, uh, you know, uh, their chances of becoming officers or things like that, you know, that they'll feel they will have more success with this kind of name in the military or something like that. Um, so there is there is a fear and there definitely is, you know, there's a worldwide explosion of anti-Semitism during World War II for obvious reasons. And I think that American Jews during the war in New York are, are responding to this. Um, but it's also about bureaucracy. So it's both about the sort of the anxiety of what being in the military in a non-Jewish space will do, how that will produce anti-Semitism or how it will expose them to anti-Semitism. But then also there is bureaucracy. Um, so, you know, a lot, the, a, a good number of these changes in World War II are either because, um, people go to report, uh, or they go to sign up for officer candidate, uh, school and they have, in just the story that I told before, you know, they find, you know, their name is different. It was informally changed. They informally changed their name five, 10 years ago for business purposes. And now the government is saying, or this office, the person at the OC, at the officer training school is saying, you know, you need to have your documents match. If your documents don't match, you can't enroll. Um, the government also begins requiring that anybody who works for a defense plant for the defense industry at this time must produce a birth certificate. Sort of intensified concerns about surveillance emerged during World War II. And, um, and as they do that, they require that you produce a birth certificate if you want a job. Um, and that means that all these people who've informally changed their names years earlier wind up finding that they need to change their names in order to be able to get jobs um, in the war effort. Um, I'll say that by 1946, and I think this is a really astounding number, by 1946, 30% of name changers, and this is the highest in the century, 30% of name changers, are, well, I'll say 40% of name changers are either veterans or their wives, um, or veterans and their wives together, which is pretty, it's a pretty large number of people um, who either have been exposed to anti-Semitism um, or who sort of have a sense that they need to ensure that their documents match as they move along in the world. Um, how did um, potential employers and colleges respond to the name-changing phenomenon? Was there an active sort of process to identify a name-changer through the... okay? Absolutely. Nope. Keep oh, going. I'm sorry. Oh, go I didn't ahead, mean to interrupt you. I apologize. Um, yes. No, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I find most fascinating about this. Um, that, I mean, you know, so colleges like, you know, Harvard and Columbia decide they have a Jewish problem. They decide the way they're going to get rid of this Jewish problem is not simply by looking at people's names, but they decide they're going to use their application forms to identify Jews. 
And part of what they determine very consciously, like they do research um, and they say, oh, Jews are changing their names. Uh, So they actually ask a host of different kinds of questions on their forms in order to identify who is a name changer. So they ask, you know, is your mother, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your grandmother's maiden name? Has, and, and, you know, in the beginning they ask flat out, has anybody in your family ever changed their name? Have you or anybody in your family changed their names? Um, so they are absolutely using name changing as as a marker of of who's Jewish and who's not. Um, and one of my final questions for you is, what does name changing look like in the 21st century? And are there other ethnic groups attempting to change their names in the U.S.? And what does this phenomenon? And if so, what does what does this phenomenon look like? So there are, although that's not the dominant thread. So um, there are other ethnic groups that are changing their names. Um, I actually, it's it's nowhere, it doesn't look like Jews did. I mean, there's no group that is numerically dominant. Um, there are Chinese uh, Americans who are changing their names. There are Latinos who are changing their names. Um, there are Muslims who change their names. So I mean, Muslims are probably the most interesting story. I actually wasn't initially going to do 21st century name changing. I was going to stop in 1997. And people convinced me after I had done all my research that I should really go back and and look at post 9-11 name changing. And so, I mean, and it was really fascinating, you know, Muslim Americans in 2002. So I looked every five years. So 2002, 2007, 2012. Um, So in 2002, there actually were disproportionate numbers of people with, say, Middle Eastern names. I I roughly use the same kind of... uh, uh, the same kind of methodology for Middle Eastern names that I did for Jewish names, although I have far less familiarity with Middle Eastern and Muslim names. Um, but, you know, names that sort of sounded or, you know, might sound to an unschooled audience um, to be either Arabic or Muslim. Um, so there were actually disproportionate numbers of people in 2002 changing their names um, to erase these kinds of names that might be markers. Um, and their petitions actually were um, sounded a lot like the Jewish petitions of the middle of the 20th century. They were sometimes even more explicit, right? They would talk about intensified Islamophobia um, and backlash against Muslim Americans um, and that they wanted to change their names because they feared discrimination. Um, which is really striking and really important to think about. Um, at the same time, by 2007 and 2012, um, it is they are no longer disproportionate, and their name changing does not look like Jews' name changing anymore. So, um, which I think is, you know, there are a number, there are a couple of ways to kind of think about it. Um, there, there had been reports that there was a very intensified backlash against Muslim Americans right after 9/11 that kind of subsided which maybe is partially what this is reflecting. But I think it also reflects the fact that the New York City Police Department um, began to surveil the Muslim American um, and Arabic American communities um, in the wake of 9-11, doing things including uh, actually using name change petitions themselves as um, a suspect, right? So they they asked the place where I got my my petitions to begin feeding them uh, people who were changing their names, the na- the identities of people changing their names, and they began to do interviews 
the NYPD began to do interviews with um, everyone who had changed their, you know, with a random sampling of, of people who had changed their names, except more of the random sampled people were people in the Muslim uh, and Arabic communities. Um, and they were intentionally trying to scare people. They were intentionally trying to let them know that they were being watched, that they were being surveilled. Um, the department has since apologized for this kind of surveillance. Um, but I think that what was probably, I mean, I would guess that it, it had to have had some impact on people to know that you could be watched for changing your name. And you might come under just as much suspicion for changing your name as for not changing your name. And I think that that would probably depress mm, the numbers. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, well, Kirsten, we've taken up a lot of your time today and we're reaching the end of the interview. I have one final question for you. Can you share with us what you're working on next? Oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. So I just finished today, um, or I'm finishing, I'm in the process of finishing an article um, that actually finishes off this work on name changing. I, I had to take out mm. material on gender. Um, I, I, include, I include some elements of gender in the book. I, I talk about, obviously, women and children changing names in families. And I talk about kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of what this means, especially for sort of single women. So I talk a little bit about gender in the book, but I um, had to take out a lot of my findings of, from this contemporary moment in the 21st century, because actually when you ask about other ethnic groups trying to change their names, my argument would actually be that name changing has become feminized. Um, it's actually majority women now who are doing it, who are changing their names. Um, and so I just, and so it's women mm. and, and actually transgender people. So I'm actually just finishing an article that talks about name changing as a place for sort of family reconstruction, um, and, and women really basically trying to take charge, you know, sort of fight against kind of, um, visions of, um, households that don't reflect their own households, right? Visions where there's a male, a male head of household and a female dependent. Um, so I talk about that kind of thing. So that's, that's the end of my work on name changing. Um, but I'm happy to be able to tell people about it because I think it's a really important part of the story that I wasn't able to tell. Um, and I, I think that's, it's really important. But then the other work that I'm planning on starting like next week, as soon as this article is submitted, um, is I, I think I'm interested in looking at, um, academic Jews, um, the migration of academic Jews from the coasts mm. after World War II. So after, um, you know, the combination of sort of the eventual lifting of um, anti-Semitic restrictions on faculty positions, which were, you know, incredibly extensive, you know, meaning that there was maybe one Jew mm -hmm. in every college, right, or in lots of colleges and no Jews in some um, uh, you see, and, and the expansion of higher education in America, you know, during the Cold War, um, you see a lot of Jews moving to, you know, land-grant institutions like MSU, where I'm at right now, as well as a whole, you know, Indiana, you know, universities and colleges across the country. Um, and so I'm interested, I'm probably, I'm going to start with my own community here in, in Lansing, um, but I'm thinking that it's going to be a larger project, depending on what I find. Um, but I'm really interested in looking at this kind of mm. academic subculture. I'm interested in what it meant for these, I'm interested in what it meant for these mostly men, but also their families to, to move to new spaces where there were fewer Jews. Um, you know, most of them came from big, 
big cities where there had been lots of Jews, and I'm interested to see what it looks like for them to move to places where there are smaller Jewish communities, very different kinds of Jewish communities, maybe Jewish communities that were mostly reformed Jews, mostly working in business, you know, leftover from sort of, uh, you know, sort of a peddler shopkeeper kind of um, establishment. Um, you know, I think these Jews who moved as academics from the East Coast, from the coasts, look really, really different from that. Um, so I know, for example, in my community, it led to, you know, a breakaway, a Havara and a breakaway synagogue. Um, I, but I'm really, in, so I'm interested in that institutionally, but I, I'm more interested in kind of thinking about what it meant for these people's religious experiences and, and, and identity, the way that it, it, that it shaped their identities as Jews. Um, I think there's this kind of strong sense that you're, you know, that large cities are the place where you can be a Jew, right? That's, that's the best place to be a Jew. That's where the services are. That's where other Jews are. That's what enables Jewish community. Um, but, you know, the experiences that I've seen so far from people knowing my own and knowing many people and, you know, anecdotally, um, it's really not the case. In fact, these kinds of spaces actually can intensify Jewish identity and Jewish religious identification and Jewish experiences. So I'm really interested in looking at the, the, what that migration means for the individuals who are doing the migrating, I guess. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll have to keep an eye out for, for your future article and, and, and work. It sounds really amazing. Um, well, thank you again for taking the time um, to speak with us today about your fascinating research, the book, A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America, published by NYU Press, is out now. <laughs>